This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 5th of September 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host and co-pilot on this journey, Jon. Hi Dave, how are you today? Very good, thank you. And you welcome be better back. Good, right? Well, I guess... I mean, you've had vacation and everything. We should be all rested and ready to go and fired up. Or yeah. just jet-lagged and tired, I don't know. Yeah, it, it already <laughs> feels like a very, very long time ago. But yes, <laughs> we have we have both been, both been on vacation. And uh, this is now episode 51. We have half a decade of... Well, well half a, decade, a century, I'd even half say. Half a century, even, of, uh, of episodes now in the can and uh, out there in the world. Mm-hmm. And this uh, 50 plus one episode is also the first episode of our new short style of uh, doing things. If our listeners recall, uh, I think just before the summer started, we had a little Twitter poll about should we continue doing two weekly, very long episodes or move to a more uh, weekly schedule with somewhat slyer, shorter episodes. And the uh, short episode vote won. Indeed, the sharks versus turtles, sharks win. So this is going to be an episode which is entitled Roaring News for the uh, very simple and obvious reason that this is going to be a news-only episode. Indeed. So with that, I guess we better get started. Oh yeah, with the news you mean. (laughs) Indeed. Okay, Uh, who did his homework? I got two subjects I want to talk about. I mean, you have... I have, I have. Well, one theme that I'd like to talk about. Ooh, new kind of episodes, and now he's talking about themes already. Yep. What's your theme? So, my theme is it's something that I've been watching happen. Um, actually, most of it happened before um, we went on holiday, and it's continued to happen since then. Um, and it, it's about people using AI, more specifically neural networks, to name things. And uh, some of you may have seen some of these articles, um, but the sort of, as the as the year went on, you know, so basically from a period of May to August 2017, um, people were using neural nets to train, uh, to train them to actually name a variety of different things. So this started out back in um, May 2017, uh, with somebody trying to um, use a neural net to uh, name paint colors. So they basically they generated um, a bunch of um, uh, 7,700 uh, paints, paint colors along with their RGB values, the red, green, and blue color values that make up the color. And they fed a neural network uh, a bunch of uh, name samples and then got it to output a load of um, supposed names for these new colors. Now, the results were pretty awful um, <laughs> for the most part. And, um, you know, I, the links are in the show notes. Take a look. But, you know, things like, uh, can you imagine, you know, painting your, your room or your house uh, dork wood, for example, or... Um, Cindy's poop. Um, I, I, I like this one. Navel tan. Yeah. <laughs> Te- or how about testing? I mean, just not good. Not good. Anyway, and there are some far worse ones. There's a sort of uh, 
a kind of yeah. tanny brown color that just uh, yeah. we're trying to keep this a family friendly show so In, indeed but <laughs> i mean take a look the, the names are pretty bad so that was uh that was back in uh, can in, i ask a question yeah sure why did he want to do this why do people want to do anything? Why do people climb mountains? Because they're there. Why do they want neural nets to name paints? Because they're there as well. Was this a, a uh, how do you call this again? Did, did he have training data? I mean, how does he start? Did he just have the system detect the color and get naming from there? Because, I mean, like a sane green, and that's actually a bluish color. So I'm kind of trying to figure yeah. out how he trained his model. Well, I think they so they they fed um, the training data was actually from a bunch of existing paint names. So they had actually taken all that information in, and that's what this generated from that. So, yeah, sadly, yeah. don't give too many details on their methodology and uh, what the no, network looked like. But uh, it's it's fun to read. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to read, but okay. the results are fairly the fairly poor. I have okay, to read so one more. I have to read one more. Hang on. Yeah, there's definitely some sort of element of checking that it can be pronounced was not high on the list of things that this neural net was doing. By the way, so okay. Now, now we we come into into June and someone else. Then decides to use um, a, a neural network to train um, to name guinea pigs, um, and the the request actually came in from the Portland Guinea Pig Rescue um, because they need to generate a large number of names very quickly as they you know take in animals from hoarding situations and you know all that sort of thing. So. Basically, they created a uh, a neural network, um, and they they fed it. So the training material was a list of six hundred guinea pig names that the Portland Guinea Pig Rescue had assembled for them, and then it let it train itself to produce more names like the one on the list. And you know, it then goes on to produce um, some fairly amusing names like Princess Pow. Um, Pop Chop and Fuzzable, um, Buzzberry and After Pie. Um, so, it, for for whatever reason, for some, I don't know. Is it is it because of the images? I don't know. But anyway, pictures of the uh, the actual guinea pigs that actually were given these names generated by the neural net. Um, for some reason, they they for me at least they happen to work, and you know they're all pronounceable. Um, all looks pretty well, and I think you know, the, the neural net did a, a good job in creating guinea pig names, whereas the, the previous neural net failed horribly when it came to paint colors. Yeah, this also gives a little more, inf- uh, more information on what they did and how they did it. So the training data was just the names. There weren't any pictures yeah. involved there. So basically what they've done here is the same thing that your mobile phone does when you're trying to t- type a text and it uh, presents you with the next word you probably most likely want to type. So it just tries to make a kind of language from guinea pig names and then predict what the next name you would like to have would be. I think that's how they did it. I think so. Yeah, they've got that char RNN neural net. And I would have to look it up, but I think that's what that thing does. It would also make sense. 
because that just means you make a very limited language, very limited as, um, uh, cope, uh, just call that cope of uh, words, mm. and try to predict what it should become. Yeah, so it's it's um, for training sampling character level language models. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it takes a text file input. And yeah, learns to predict the next character in sequence. Yeah. So yeah, but he did also have some uh, bad results. He has a couple at the bottom, which he uh, says there. A couple, a couple. I'm not going to say but, the first one. <laughs> but none, you know, none of them seem to be named after, I don't know, Death Bunny or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm hoping that nobody has named their uh, uh, guinea pig that something. So that word shouldn't be in the. In well, the, uh, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Humans are strange. <laughs> this is true. Okay, so now we move forward into uh, July, and uh, so this is a couple of weeks after the the first effort um, of, of uh, neural nets naming things, and uh, comes back with a, a tweaked neural net. I think they they tweaked the uh, um, the some of the variables, so um, turning down the creativity and also turning down the temperature uh, variable to to try and adjust the results that uh, the, the paint naming neural net was was spitting out. And honestly, still still not still not great. Um, and again, I, I can't explain why, but. You know things like Parp Green and uh, Stunking Sanko, and you know regularly some pretty uh, some pretty terrible um, names coming out of this one yeah. as well. Well, the names are still pretty terrible, but at least now the color matching was a bit more in order. Because in the first attempt, they had something called brown, which is actually blue or something like that. While in this example, the, the, at least the list that's shown on the page. Uh, green looks green, brown looks brown, lila looks lila, red wheat looks reddish. So yep. it, from that point, it's a better result. But still... But, Not I mean, something you want in your uh, DIY store. No, no. <laughs> no, I, and I can't see any of them being colors that you go, oh, I quite like the idea of having my house painted... Uh, Polar know. forest mall pepper. Breedly burf. It <laughs> just, yeah, it, it, it fails, fails, I'm afraid. Okay, so now now, now we continue, and we're, we're back in, in, in late July now, and uh, a, uh, a neural net this time is, is trained to generate incredibly British place names, and again, links in the show notes. Um, and... Uh, it, it's come up with four and a half thousand um, um, names, which are on, honestly, I can imagine being places. Um, for some reason, um, these just seem to fit in really well, and you know, they don't give too much information on. Mm. In fact, hardly any information on what they've done to. Uh, to create it, but it, it seems to work surprisingly well, so much so that I, I... Yeah, but is this because they have a very good neural network or because, in general, UK place names are a bit wacky anyway? 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But okay, so let's let's move on to the final example here. Um, yeah, that's what I like here. most. So we're now in August, and uh, apparently, craft brewers are running out of beer names. Um, so that uh, companies are having to compromise over shared names and lawyers are getting involved in all terrible things like that. And someone had an idea of, well, surely we can we can use um, uh, use a neural net to generate beer names. And then, lo and behold, here you are. So they, they, they even categorized into IPAs, mm-hmm. strong pale ales, amber ales, and stouts. Um, and... Honestly, most of them are pretty good. I can actually see myself walking, you know, walking into a a shop and and picking up a bottle of um, barrel-aged chocolate milk smoke or shump <laughs> or bold old trout stout. Yeah, yeah well, I actually drank a, a glass of liquid sunshine uh, during my vacation, so yeah, these look very very acceptable. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I guess what I'm the whole. I'm partially. I'm just bringing these up because I just think it's funny that for some reason, you know, I think the the paint one was obviously the catalyst for a lot of these things, and then people just started thinking, well, yeah. what else could we use neural nets for? That's that's to me at least that looks like what's happened. But what's just curious to me is why some of these have been really quite successful, and some of them have just failed is it something about paints where there's 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 so much more in a paint um that that the name of that paint conveys whereas you know place names or guinea pig names or or beers uh, can be more quirky and interesting i i don't well, know there is a big difference between the two of course because with the paints you're actually making a describing name you want the name to tell me what kind of color it is yep. the other ones you're just giving something a name it's like when you have a child and you name it you don't even know what the child's going to look like when you choose a name usually so mm-hmm. you can't have a descriptive name it's just a name you like the sound of Mm-hmm. So for the beers and the guinea pigs, uh, something like uh, Wicked G, yeah, sounds like fun, even though it doesn't describe anything at all. For the paints, Wicked G still is a very cool name. It just doesn't tell you what color it is, so it's a bad name. So that's yeah. one big difference I see between the two uh, approaches here. Yeah. I also noticed that um, so both the guinea pig uh, one and the BNA one both use the same neural network. They both use the, or at least some of the beer uh, ones, both use the char and then. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty sure the other ones do too, network. actually. But yeah. again, no uh, details. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, is do you think there are some things that, because of that differentiator, do you think there are some things that are inherently. It, it, basically, is there something useful that we can draw from this fairly amusing kind of collection of articles? Uh, Do you think there are some things that are, that this suggests are good for for using neural nets for? Um, yeah, I mean, the biggest takeaway is takeaway for me is that it's apparently rather easy to set up a neural net and do something fun with it. Mm. I mean, five years ago, if you want to try this, you should you just couldn't. So that's a big plus for me, just the fact that people can do silly things like this to build better stuff. Uh, 
Second thing it shows me is that training a neural net is, uh, well, is it a science or is it an art? You decide, but it's more than just uh, turning some knobs and hoping for the best result. And I'm pretty sure that the differences in the results that they've gotten are totally related to their training data and how mm. they uh, set up the hyperparameters for their neural networks. I don't think they actually change the uh, layers of their neural nets because, as you know, neural nets have multiple layers and your data passes through the layers to get to a certain result. I pretty much don't think they change that because they, well, at least two of them actually uh, told us what uh, uh, architecture they're using. And you, once you have one of those architectures, you don't typically change it that much. You just change the hyperparameters. But those hyperparameters can be very important. And one of them, I forget which one, uh, talked about uh, toning down the temperature. I think it was a second uh, paint. Yeah. And what that actually does is make the neural network be less creative. But what does that mean? Less creative, right? <laughs> That's where it's, it's a science, it's an art. It's a bit of both, I think, at least at this yeah. point in time. And where it was more of an art before, it's becoming more and more of a science, which for me means predictability gets better. You can actually now start knowing that if I turn this knob this way, it will re produce results skewed that way. Well, yeah. and the more people play with this, and that's again why I say that it, the, the biggest takeaway for me is the fact that somebody can just do this and play with this so easily. The more you play with these things, the more these uh, networks are used and optimized and yeah, grokked for lack of a better word, the yeah. more you can have that predictability and the more it becomes a science, which is in the end what you want. Very much so. So there you go. So that was Dave just having fun. Pretty much. And ending and with beer. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to have a, a, a <laughs> glass of Frog Trail Ale while uh, while John introduces us his, to uh, to his next topic. Well, I'll put my uh, Fragger Bar to the side for now, <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about some more serious stuff. Uh, as I said, I had two little articles I wanted to uh, put up. First one is more of a uh, blog I found on the Cloudera blog site by Bubashir Kazia. And it was a bit of a, oh, hello moment for me, because apparently uh, it's talking about Kerberos. The thing is called Accessing Secure Clusters from Web Applications, which is a terrible name because it doesn't really talk tell you what the article is about. Uh, what it actually is about is uh, we all know how Kerberos works to authenticate yourself, get a ticket so you can access a cluster and do stuff with it. And then on the cluster, in your Ranger or Sentry or whatever you're using for your uh, authentication authorization stuff, you can decide if uh, Yon with this ticket is allowed to touch Hive or David that uh, ticket is allowed to touch uh, Spark, I don't know. Apparently now, in, uh, since Java 8, uh, it now supports something called Kerberos Constraint Delegation, where you can actually put in the ticket what service it is for. So the Kerberos ticket itself can actually restrain you from doing more than what me as your access giver decides you can do. It's no longer the, the person that installs the application or does the authorization part. It's, it's actually kind of a merging of authorization back into authentication, which mm -hmm. is uh, a funny concept, which I had never heard about, never really played with. And apparently it's Java 8. And uh, okay, so that was my aha moment. So, uh, okay, interesting. And the second part, the second reason I wanted to um, put this blog out is that it also gives you a very complete 
detailed explanation tutorial follow the the bullets on how to kerberize a application in your hadoop cluster it has screenshots from your active directory uh, configuration and to be honest it's one of the most complete uh, examples of kerberizing something i've uh, ever seen They, inst- they include the, the Spinego part, where if you're doing a web access to Kerberos, you need to use Spinego protocol to make that work. So they explain all that stuff. They show you the Active Directory thing, as I talked about already. Uh, it is fairly thin. They just go to a Tomcat's web service that does a single uh, application. A single JSP. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's not a, a, a cluster-wide thing, but... Um, Well, there's well, many cluster-wide things out there already. I like the way that this one goes thin but deep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's connecting to a it's connecting to Impala, isn't it? The, the yeah. JSP file grabs some information from from Impala. So yeah, exactly. Nice. So uh, it's a nice thing, and also uh, kudos to Cloudera. Their blogs yeah. are getting better. I guess they've been listening to us. Maybe. <laughs> so the the nice thing about this is. It's just using, you know, pretty vanilla, vanilla um, terms and components all the way through. Yep. So this is something that pretty much, you know, anyone should be able yep. to apply on their Hadoop environment. No, yeah. that's really good. But the only thing that might be interchangeable is a Tomcat. They're using Tomcat here to do the web interface. And, well, not yeah. everybody's using Tomcat. But all the other stuff, uh, the Spinego, the, the Active Directory, yeah, that's going to be valid everywhere. So, And Tomcat is just an easy uh, plug-in here to yeah. make it work. I mean, Tomcat can be quite simple to set up. and They don't yeah, yeah. embellish it too much here. Yeah, and it's just a very nice read. And uh, if anybody out there is uh, looking <laughs> looking to that wall called Kerberos and, oh, my God, how am I going to scale that wall? Uh, this is a different way of looking at it, and it's a very complete uh, example. And I enjoyed it very much. Mm. And even some troubleshooting steps in there as yeah, well. Exactly. That was also, uh, as we always say, tell us what doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> troubleshooting information. It's a bit a step in the right direction, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, no, a very detailed blog. And uh, Mr. Mubashir Kazia, good job. Yeah, yeah. More articles from them. Yeah, cool. Please. Good so that's one. That's uh, Kerberos. And the second uh, thingy I have is a smaller blog from, the, from Confluent mm-hmm. that actually talks about uh, Kafka Connect. And Kafka Connect is a, a system that uh, allows you to connect sources and destinations to your Kafka stream stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really want to talk about uh, Kafka Connect itself. If you I have never played with Kafka Connect before, for, so it's, it's a nice read. If you don't know much about it, have some idea what it does. The reason I'm, show, I'm calling this one out is while I was going through this, and uh, if anybody has worked with Kafka before, we all know what Kafka looks like. It's a VI editor with a lot of uh, text in it. And if you type two characters in the wrong way, you, you start pulling out your hair. And as we've been already long-time NiFi fanboys, we don't even try to get out of that anymore, I think. I couldn't help myself comparing this because basically what Kafka does is very similar to what NiFi does. It's just a, a, a stream structure, a, a event bus, if you like. Something comes in from somewhere, you do something with it, and you put it somewhere else. This is exactly the same thing. But where in NiFi, you would just have this, uh, I believe, very nice graphical interface where you can just wizard-driven, I 
can hardly type something wrong because it's all being input checked and everything. This mm-hmm. is just a VI editor and start typing a bunch of code. And I was wondering, am I just spoiled and wrong about this? Or is Kafka just, I would hate to say outdated because it still runs very well and it's very scalable and it's a very cool piece of tech and it works. No issues there. But are we going to keep on doing this or will that uh, continuous integration style of working that NiFi has, will that supplant this at some point? I, When I read this, I really felt going back a couple of years, which was mm. weird. So difficult to disagree with you as much as I like disagreeing with you. Um, I suppose... <laughs> The, the some <laughs> of the you. pieces that would be slightly different would be, I mean, if you've got a position where you've you've got a lot of data feeding into something real time, and you're building up a you know a significant input buffer for a variety of different services to read off of, that's probably still you know if the whole sort of Storm and Kafka play together yeah but is that kafka storm at that point well if you've got data i mean how you get data into kafka is one question and i think that is very much being i think that has very much been supplanted by nifi but then well that's using, what this kafka connects is supposed to be making easier right this is exactly what this yeah. is about well and, this this one's about jdb source jdbc sources and syncs for kafka connect yeah, yeah. so yeah, from that perspective, oh, Kafka Connect has many uh, different connectors. Okay, you have a lot of them that are being built by Confluent themselves, but you have a lot of open source ones which also work but aren't supported officially. But they have, if you compare the Connect plugins and the processors from NiFi, there was a very big overlap. Mm. But as you say, the 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 use of Kafka Connect like this is star typing code. Yeah. I mean, there are advantages in that. If I want to have a cluster that I can deploy from scripts, is this easier? Because I've never actually done a NiFi from script. I'm, I'm assuming that uh, when I do stuff in the GUI from in NiFi, I'm actually writing a JSON file or XML or something somewhere. Can you just uh, give NiFi a text configuration-ish file and make it work? Yeah, I mean, you can feed it. You can export a template, can't you? And import yeah, you it write into one? a blank. Yeah. You can go and write that's, one. It's, that's it's a lot text. easier to mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot easier to um to pull uh, yeah, one sure. out of an existing flow you've built. But yeah, you can go and write one yourself manually and JSON validate it and because yeah. that was the only thing I was thinking about with Kafka, if I have something like a CF Engine or Puppet or Chef these are just script files. It's easy to have configuration management done that way. NiFi is harder because uh, last time I worked with it, I didn't find an undo button in NiFi to, to go back a step. Not sure if it's there now because it has been no. a while. It's and, still, still not there. But the idea for NiFi is that you don't change things. You just make a new uh, split from your data stream, put the new stuff in, and then disconnect the old one, but leave it there just in case, right? You don't need yep. to remove it. So going back uh, going back in time in your configuration is just yeah, breaking that connection and putting the old one back in place. So there's different ways of looking at it, working with it. Yeah. 
So, I mean, Nifi is going through some some iterations at the moment, and certainly that whole um, enterprise software development lifecycle side of things is something that has been missing from mm-hmm. from Nifi up until this point. And I know that there are some changes going up into um, the code base at the moment that makes some of that okay. um, a lot easier. Excellent. So it, it's definitely moving in that direction, or it's it's at least getting the flexibility so you can deploy and run like that if you want to. Because uh, we just say that the, the the biggest reason to do that is that uh, the sysadmins and DevOps of today they are used to working with files like the Kafka way, and they're not used to working with things like uh, NiFi. So having them be able to look at it and work with it in a, in a in a way that they are used to work with it that that makes it easier for them to adopt it well I, I doubt it to be honest because I think that people like people like what they know and people understand dev test and prod and you know writing our config in dev promoting it to test if that goes well promoting that into prod people understand that that way of working and but what then people don't like is oh you know you hand them hand them a bunch of okay this is how you you know write a bunch of um operations for kafka oh well i don't like that that's that's too difficult so you know, you need something that's that's somewhere in between, and you know, NiFi is coming at things from the other direction. Mm-hmm. You know, very easy to use, very easy to, you know, create a flow in you know a handful of seconds. But you know, having that then in a sort of dev test yeah. prod style workflow, a lot more difficult. So yeah, it doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, it does. It does. But so there are, if you look at, there's a GitHub repo that has, and we can put the link in the show notes, uh, that has a set of um, supporting scripts that you can run with uh, NiFi that will give you some of that software development lifecycle style experience. And it uses a combination of the uh, templates that you can export and API calls to instantiate them and things like that. So it's it's doable today with a bit of extra workaround. Yeah, but is it really a valid dev test environment? Because if you look at a, a Kafka, a NiFi, or whatever, a streaming topology, there's one thing to test, does my script run? Does it have syntax errors? Does it crash? Are all the libraries present? Stuff like that. But what you actually want to test there is, if I run this in my production environment with X amount of events per second, will it fall over or will it be able to consume all those events? And yeah. the only way to test that is by yeah, pretty much putting it into production. Because else you would have to make you have to you'd have to fake the same amount of data from your production environment. Why would you well, if you could just use NiFi and have a second stream going on using that same uh, data stream and just let it pass through because if you have a dev environment you cannot touch your production environment and that makes it hard for me when I talk to customers that want to do a dev test environment in an IoT environment they basically only test the syntax of their scripts and not really the IoT environment itself so this is where you get into conversations around uh, benchmarking, profiling, um, scaling—you know, if if a 
if a three node cluster of you know this sort of spec which is i don't know three very very small virtual nodes can do this number of events per second then our production hardware of you know such and such a spec should be able to do this many events per second and having some sort of scaling factor that's backed up by um, a certain amount of, of testing. The problem with those, and that's a great approach, I'm not knocking that approach, but what I would also say is that that is not going to give you um, a complete concrete response because there will be things that will happen at certain inflection points during your scaling mm-hmm. that you won't be able to predict. Yeah. Um, you know, there'll be, you'll hit certain limits at certain parts of the infrastructure and that's just what happens. And yeah. you, you can, you can try and mitigate some of this by, you know, not winding everything in at full pelt immediately and, and kind of dialing things up as much as you can in, in sort of stages and watching different parts of the infrastructure as it goes through and monitoring it correctly. But at some point you need to turn the taps on full to catch up with, production workload and it's only really at that point that you're going to find out whether or not it will stand up to the load yeah because doubling the amount of memory or having a cpu that's x amount of teraflops more than the other one that might have a factor too but your network port is still that same one gigabit network port your tcp ip sockets still have a limited number of sockets you can have on the system yeah, and those things don't scale or scale very differently from uh, the traditional way of scaling stuff. And from my point of view, I'm living in the cloud world. Same thing there. What kind of VM sizing do I need? Does VM X, well, VM X plus two has more data, more sorry, has more memory, but also has different IOPS limitations, for example. And it's very hard to predict these things. And it's very, yeah. it's very difficult conversations. But then, you know, sizing sizing has always been. Yes more of an art than a science like we we have we have some rules and guidelines that we we stick to as mm-hmm. as kind of architects in this in this world but they are very much guidelines and yeah. they're they're based on what we've seen operate successfully in the past um but those guidelines also evolve over time you know people ask often ask for best practices for doing this or you know, recommended architectures for doing that. And, you know, some of these we we literally just pulled together based on fragments of knowledge we have based yeah. on other things that we've seen work. And we sort of clutched them into some sort of format that, you know, we believe would work. But yeah. it's very difficult to, to create, you know, something with a, a cast iron guarantee because you only really get that guarantee after it's gone in production and it's really running. Yeah, 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 and it's very rare. I mean, I've never encountered it that you have a uh, use case, a project that's identical to something you've done before. They're yeah. always different. They're always yeah, yeah. bigger, smaller, more left, more right, more up, more bottom. Yep. And it's all uh, more of a guesstimation than something else. And yeah, in these kind of projects, start with a f- assumption that what you're going to start with will be either be too big or too small but live with the realization that these things are horizontally scalable. So if it's too big, well, just scale it down a bit. If it's too small, add more nodes. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that this is, you know, we are dealing with scale-out technologies here. Mm -hmm. So 
if it's if it's too big today, it'll probably be the right size in six months' time. You know, <laughs> don't True. don't don't beat yourself up about it. You're you've built a great environment, and you know, go and use it. Go and yeah. use it to generate some revenue for your organization, or save you some money, or you know, go and go and actually stretch the legs on it. And if you've built it too small, well, you know, it happens. Throw a few more nodes at it, get it up to spec, and then start using it. Well, I mean, from a technical point of view, that's perfect. But there's also the budgeting point of view. Yeah, and the that's, commercial uh, perspective is a lot, a lot trickier. Yeah. Which is why I try to stay away from that. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're not in sales, right? <laughs> exactly right. Well, that was a nice, uh, um, how do you call that, uh, diversions from Kafka into NiFi into scalability and uh, horizontal scaling dev, of clusters. Dev test, dev test prod. Yeah, <laughs> we had the whole thing. Software development life cycle. <laughs> All comes in. Oh, well, any closing thoughts from you? Um, the only other thing I would think about is, I think we have talked about this before on the podcast, but you know, everybody listens to our entire back catalogue, although they should, because there's some gems in there. Um, but <laughs> There's also a lot of rubbish. No, 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 it's no, all no. great. Um, but the other thing is, when you're creating, you know, if you do have an environment, you have a dev test and a prod, you have, you know, some sort of fixed scaling factor or ratio between them. Um, make sure that you regularly update what that scaling factor is. As you grow each of these environments differently, those scaling factors will change somewhat. Um, and ha so have a a test data set that you can continually benchmark internally, you know, what those scaling factors are, what the differences and deltas are. Because if you don't do that and if you don't understand, you know, how those things are changing within your different environments, then it's, it's another way that you could get caught out. But, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much all I have to say on that for today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's a whole episode in itself, I guess. <laughs> Indeed. But this is about all the time we have for today, because these are the new, shorter versions of our podcast episodes. We do hope you enjoyed this version of bite-sized big data news. We will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelfin.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. And you can also find us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag. And you can send email to us uh, through podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticism, or other feedback. Until next time, which is next week, my name is Jon. And my name is Dave. I look forward to talking to you next week. See you later.